right. and the and the essence of man's search for meaning is that i mean there are many many things and many deprivations that we can live with right. but lack of meaning and lack of purpose is likely something that we can't live with right. and living a life that feels meaningless and without purpose eventually is living a life where as one of my patients told me breathing feels like it's become redundant Welcome to our show, the Chronic Pain Experience Podcast that dives deep into the profound journey of living and dying with dignity. I'm your host, Dina Chopolis, and in today's episode, we embark on a heartfelt exploration of what it truly means to find dignity in the face of life's most challenging moments. And a warning to our listeners, we will be touching on suicidal ideation, which may be difficult for some to hear. In a world that often rushes past the questions of existence and mortality, we'll take a step back to explore the profound aspects of the human experience. Whether it's living with chronic pain, facing a terminal illness, or simply seeking purpose and meaning in our everyday lives, the quest for dignity is a universal thread that binds us all. We'll delve into the crucial role of support systems, of patient-centered care, and the importance of -of end-of-life care that honors the essence of our humanity. Join us on this emotional and enlightening journey as we uncover the profound wisdom that can be found in embracing both life and death with dignity. It's a conversation that promises to inform and inspire and hopefully leave you with a deeper appreciation for the precious gift of existence. But before we begin, a little context. Years of research is showing us that chronic pain impacts all aspects of life from our emotional well-being, quality of life we lead, to fractured relationships and not feeling safe on our own body, to a profound sense of loss and hopelessness. And the science of pain states that chronic pain alters the brain's pain processing systems, changing the brain structurally, functionally, and chemically. So it's no wonder that many in the chronic pain community, at least at one time, thought about dying as an attempt to escape what is perceived as unbearable suffering. So if you are listening to this podcast and you are living with unbearable pain, believe that there is hope. Uh, We see you, we acknowledge you, and we acknowledge your suffering. If you have at one time contemplated dying, know that you are not alone. Statistically, there is a 20 to 40% prevalence rate of suicide ideation and a lifetime prevalence between 5% and 14% of suicide attempts. It is my sincerest wish that in today's episode, you will come away with a different perspective in which to contemplate your pain, your lived experience, all with a renewed sense of hope, because there is hope. But today, I am over the moon excited to introduce you to our esteemed guest, Dr. Harvey Chachanoff. Dr. Chachanoff has been a guest lecturer in most ma- uh, major academic institutions throughout Canada, United States. He's lectured in South America, New Zealand, Australia, Europe, Cuba, Israel, China, Singapore, Taiwan, and Japan. He is the only psychiatrist in Canada to be designated as a Soros Faculty Scholar Project on Death in America. He is the co-founder of the Canadian Virtual Hospice, which is the world's largest repository of web-based information and support for dying patients, their families, and healthcare providers. His book, Dignity Therapy, Final Words for Final Days, was the 2011 winner of the Prose Award. In addition to over 300 publications, he is the co-editor of the Handbook of, of Psychiatry and Palliative Medicine, published by Oxford University Press, and the journal Palliative and Support Care, published by Cambridge University Press. He has received top research awards from the Canadian Psychiatric Association, the Canadian Cancer Society, the American Association of Hospice and Palliative Care, and the International Psycho-Oncology Society, a Lifetime Achievement Award from the Canadian Association of Psychosocial Oncology. In 2021, he received the highest honor that can be bestowed by the Canadian Medical Association, the FNG Star Award. He is a fellow of the Royal Society of Canada and a fellow of the Canadian Academy of Health Sciences. Dr. Chachanov is also a recipient of the Queen's Golden Jubilee Medal and the Order of Manitoba. He's also an officer in the Order of Canada, and in 2020, he was inducted into the Canadian Medical Hall of Fame. He is a father, a husband, and an all-around lovely human being. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Chachanov. I am thrilled to have you here. 
I'm, I'm equally thrilled to be here and I'm looking forward to our conversation. Yeah, me too. Thank you. And sorry for the long intro. <laughs> there was just so much to share. <laughs> Very kind. No. Very kind. Well, thank you. All right. So let's dive into the meat and potatoes. What is it that inspired you to get into palliative care in the first place? Oh, goodness. What a what an interesting question. Um, I mean, there are there there are always personal things mm -hmm. that that move people, you know, towards a a, a particular vocation, and I'm sure there were, uh, and certainly in my instances, there were uh, things uh, about uh, you know being a a member of my family. I had a, an older sister who was born with uh, cerebral palsy, uh, mm -hmm. so we kind of as as a family lived the experience uh, with someone who had. Uh, lifelong uh, physical, uh, emotional challenges. Um, and although that, I say, likely shaped my choice, it, it wasn't, you know, sort of a, a conscious decision or a realization that on the basis of that, I am going to now pursue a, a career in, in medicine or a, a career in, in palliative medicine per se. But, but I found myself, um, you know, in university contemplating sort of a path forward and, and medicine seemed to be sort of an, a, an appropriate avenue to uh, uh, pursue. Um, and then, you know, as, as in life, you know, one thing led to another, I, I became interested in psychiatry. As I studied psychiatry, I became interested in the interface between psychiatry and oncology, that is the study of patients with cancer. Uh, that took me on a journey to uh, New York City to uh, study with the uh, the late great uh, Dr. Jimmy Holland, who is the uh, world's uh, founder and pioneer in the area of psychooncology at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. Then returned to uh, to Winnipeg, where uh, began a a service of uh, looking at psychosocial uh, supports for patients and their families. And then within a few years, uh, kind of segued into the research world. And, and, and it just so happened that the first research that we embarked on was in the area of palliative care. And it was so e extraordinarily uh, interesting and uh, intellectually and emotionally engaging that that initial study, which you know goes back to you know early 1990s, really, um, has sustained me for all, all of these decades. I mean, I, I really don't think that I, I wake up uh, one day without feeling a sense of kind of enthusiasm and excitement and engagement in pursuing this kind of work. Mm, well, I, I'm assuming there were some gaps to fill too. And I'm, you know, I'm, we're going to get into it, but some of your research and the work that you're doing is probably filling in a very big need uh, and a large gap. So we'll definitely get into that. But before we do, how, because our podcast is really focusing on living and dying with dignity, how would you define or describe dignity? <laughs> well, I think some people would say that, you know, I have kind of a, a perseveration with dignity because I've been looking at it and dealing with it in, in, in various different ways, particularly from, from a research vantage point. Again, at, at least for, you know, the last 20 to 25 years, we began, and, and this is sort of, I'll be a little bit long-winded, but I, I will lead to a, a response. We began studying the issue of dignity because of some data that was coming out of the Benelux countries where people were receiving euthanasia or assisted suicide. And there was a pivotal study, at least from, from my vantage point, a pivotal study that shaped my ideas about dignity because the lead author, a man named Paul Vandermast, actually went to the death records of patients who had died as a result of assisted death. Ah. And he then interviewed all of these physicians and said, okay, tell us why your patient sought out this particular means of ending their life. Mm -hmm. And according to these Dutch physicians, more so than pain, more so than any other variable that came forward was a lost sense of dignity. Uh -huh. now, we didn't have a definition at that point. Um, you know, it was however these Dutch physicians happened to interpret whatever that meant. Right. We also didn't have the information from the vantage point of the patients who had already died. So 
that was really the the tipping point for us to say you know if dignity is worth dying for dignity is worth studying mm -hmm. um and we began a series of studies that you know have resulted in you know a, a model of dignity in the terminally ill uh, an instrument measuring dignity related to stress the patient dignity inventory um, a psychotherapeutic intervention aimed at trying to enhance sense of dignity something called dignity therapy mm -hmm. i mean dignity yeah, I mean, and again, sort of going back to a dictionary definition is to be deserved of honor, respect, or esteem. Mm. But whenever I'm asked, you know, so how do you understand dignity or how do you interpret dignity in, in the context of caring for patients, I immediately go back to the empirical work that we did. And there is a, a model of dignity in the terminal ill that we created that says, okay, here are the multitude of influences mm -hmm. on patient sense of dignity. So, um, so rather than you know perseverating, well, how do we define it uh, beyond the dictionary definition? I say, well, it really depends on what elements of that model are endorsed or embraced by that particular patient. It's it's not a hierarchical model. It doesn't apply. Not every element applies equally to all folks. So that for some for example, good pain control, and you mentioned the importance of pain, good pain control, feeling like, you know, you have bodily integrity because you're not feeling distressed by symptoms that are, you know, just out of control. Um, for others, it's much more a spiritual issue and pursuing a spiritual pathway that enhances a sense of dignity. For others, it's really about you know, the, uh, the, the environment, you know, the um, supporting of uh, autonomy or safeguarding privacy, counterbalanced by, by social support, even something as basic as what we call care tenor, the mm -hmm. tone of care of those who are providing um, uh, assistance to that individual and, and, and their family. And, and maybe the last thing that I'll, I'll say is that we, uh, well, not necessarily the last thing, but just in response to your question, we actually, in one of our early studies, um, asked the question that you've asked of me, but did so in an empirical fashion. In other words, we had this whole body of data, you know, over 200 patients that we had measures on various facets of their experience. And we asked the data, you know, by, by virtue of, you know, the analytic process we were going through, what is most predictive of sense of dignity you know if you had to choose one thing and again we weren't asking an individual we were asking the computer to generate in you know what are called you know regression models what is the thing that predicts most of variance in sense of dignity mm -hmm. and the thing that came out was this notion of appearance or to kind of flesh that out how people perceive themselves to be seen Oh. So, so the, the most astounding thing about th that finding and about sense of dignity is, you know, in some ways, it's sort of like dignity is in the eye of the beholder, which is mm. the name of, a, of an article I wrote. And, mm. and metaphorically, patients are looking in the eye of the healthcare provider for a reflection that will be affirming of their sense of personhood. Oh. So for clinicians, that's how I would define dignity if I had to choose a particular definition, which is to say, the way you are with patients, the way they experience themselves as reflected in your eye, is going to determine whether or not they feel dignity is being upheld or not. Oh, wow. Okay. So much to unpack there. I, I won't go too much into detail because I know we have more to talk about, but it the overlap between end-of-life care and chronic pain, or at least the lived experience, is enormous. And I think the most powerful thing you said there was just that belief or that feel of how they're being perceived um, as far as their autonomy, their condition, their lived experience. I know that some of the groundbreaking work you are doing is really defining, redefining, pardon me, what patient-centered care looks like. So uh, for palliative care, for sure, but I do think there's such overlap between the chronic pain experience. How would you describe patient-centered care? Well, um, I actually have been writing about, and I would kind of tweak the question slightly, because mm -hmm. I've been writing a lot about, you know, two things one i call you know dignity conserving care and one uh, and, and and very much related to that hand in hand is what i call person centered care i like that okay so what do we and and 
Again, the interesting thing is that when you look at healthcare facilities, you know, and I mean, I've had the great privilege of, uh, of, of traveling the world and talking to healthcare providers and healthcare administrators, everybody is invested, at least philosophically, and to the extent that they're willing to uh, give lip service to their endorsement of person-centered care. And so my first uh, question when I hear people, you know, uh, saying that is, well, how do you ensure that you know the person in order to provide person-centered care? Ah. Because from, from my position, unless you know the person, mm -hmm. you cannot provide person-centered care. You can provide friendly care, you can provide polite care, call it what you will, even if it's in your position statement and you've, you know, you've have t-shirts that say, you know, our healthcare facility endorses person-centered care. In the absence of knowing who that person is, you cannot provide person-centered care. And so much of the work, and we may get into this in some of the later questions, much of the work that we have done has really looked at how do we make sure that personhood is on our clinical radar? Because if you, if you look at some of the, the medical literature, especially around issues related to uh, suffering, and there was a, a wonderful uh, American intensivist named Eric Cassell who examined suffering and who wrote some of the seminal papers on suffering, even one on something I think was called The Nature of Suffering uh, mm -hmm. that was published in the New England Journal many, many years ago. And from a Cassell vantage point, suffering is about is the experience that patients have that people have when they feel that personhood mm -hmm. their essence mm -hmm. is under assault or in a state of disintegration right so for us then and again getting back to this notion of dignity and how people um, perceive themselves to be seen although we train all of our professional lives to look after patients uh -huh. great irony is no one wants to be seen as just a patient right? because patient is a generic term. I mean, it's a generic term that refers to this kind of compilation of bits and bobs that we all have yes. um, and that are predictable, that are physiologically, you know, in inherently logical and can be uh, measured and can be manipulated. Mm -hmm. That is what we mean when we refer to patient. But the truth is, personhood is exactly the opposite of generic. Oh, it wow. is individual. It is idiosyncratic. Okay. You know, there has only been and there will only ever be mm -hmm. one exactly like you. I mean, you are one of a kind. Yeah. And so the, the thing that is so important about personhood mm -hmm. is that patients indeed do suffer when the reflection that they see in the eye of the healthcare provider is simply a differential diagnosis right. or a problem checklist. Yes. On the other hand, if they can see the entirety of who they are as a human being, you know, that there's, there's at least acknowledgement or appreciation, you know, of the person, then even while the physician is attentive or the healthcare provider and system is attentive to the physicality of what's going on. They're not naive um, and indifferent to the human pathos of what's going on by virtue of acknowledging who is this, not only what you have, but who you are. Right. Oh, so well said. My goodness. <laughs> okay. I do want to make sure that I'm being very clear for our listeners that um, this podcast episode is really coming about as a result of uh, I wanting wanting to address the multiple messages that come through almost on the daily into some of these uh, chronic pain support groups on Facebook, where there are really a lot of people who are struggling to believe that death might be the only escape from the pain. And I do want to be very clear that although pain can severely impact quality of life, and it may feel like nothing you do is helping with the pain, research is showing that there is hope. And part of the hope lies in um, sort of this adaptability of our our brain and our body um, and this whole process of self-care management. So there are things that we can do. And I, I wanted to make sure that when I came into this podcast, that I don't want people feeling like 
there is no hope, there is no choice. Um, and so that's part of the reason I wanted to get this um, podcast out here. So how can the principles and practices commonly associated with end-of-life care, such as empathy, compassion, and preserving one's sense of self, be adapted and applied to individuals who are living with chronic pain? You know, although um, much of what you and I are talking about today uh, you know, may uh, appear uh, to be uh, focused solely on, on, on palliative care or, or end-of-life care, um, in my sense uh, and my feeling about uh, this body of work is that we we have studied the human condition from a position of people who are near the end which gives us a really interesting vantage point you know these are people who have experienced you know for large measure the entirety of their existence and are providing these reflections about as you said in your introduction i mean what is it to be human. And so even though the vantage point is palliative care, the observations are about the human condition. So I don't see, and, and, and it's not that issues of dignity, issues of personhood, issues related to compassion and empathy and connectedness and respect uh, somehow have a, a monopoly when it comes to end of life care. Those things apply to the entirety of the human experience. And each of us know at any time we enter into healthcare, you know, whether it's for a checkup, whether it's for uh, a condition that we're now experiencing or a healthcare concern, whether it's for chronic pain or whether it's for a life-threatening and life-limiting condition. So again, just to point out to your listeners that although uh, my introduction says, oh, th this guy knows a lot about palliative care, what my patients have taught me and what the research findings have taught me really are uh, about the human condition. Um, with respect to the issue of so, you know, how, what, what can we do to make a difference for people who are, you know, in, in, in a position of uh, kind of abject suffering? And of course, I mean, palliative care, uh, medical care, just like the, the care for people with pain is multifactorial. Um, and although we in, in medicine are very good at placing these factors into silos, uh, the reality is that, I mean, human beings aren't easily siloed. You know, I mean, uh, and, and uh, we, we know this, uh, you know, intuitively, but certainly in terms of, you know, the research that I've done, I mean, we have done studies, for example, of uh, people who are um, entering into hospice and we've measured their level of pain every single day twice daily from the time that they enter into hospice to a time when they can no longer offer data when you measure at the same time their will to live the two factors are almost like in this intimate tango they they go hand in hand so i mean we have shown then that as you influence something like pain, which is very much a, a physical sensation by and large, mm -hmm. you also influence this very spiritual domain of patient outlook, which is, do I want to be here? Right. Um, is life worth living? Uh, does, it, does it matter? Mm -hmm. So that is to say then that if, if we are going to be attentive to people with you know, complex problems like pain, then we need to be paying attention and using every tool in our armamentarium, whether that be from a, a physical vantage point, a spiritual vantage point, existential, psychological, all of those things need to be brought to bear if we're going to be doing justice to being attentive to that patient. Now, the other thing that, that comes to mind, and again, I was just talking about this with a group of, uh, of residents yesterday who were training in palliative care, and I told them about uh, a really fascinating study. Uh, and this was a study, uh, the first author was Kelly Trevino. It was published in the journal, I think it was in the journal Cancer. And she looked at predictors of suicidality ah. in this group of young patients with cancer. Yeah. She measured everything, you know, she measured all kinds of variables, including pain, all kinds of variables that might influence Mm -hmm. whether patients were feeling 
suicidal or not. The thing that came out as most predictive of whether or not somebody was suicidal or not was the robustness and the stability of their connection with their medical oncologist. Oh, wow. So what, which isn't to say that, you know, if you're living with pain, the only thing that matters is you have a really good relationship with your, uh, with your uh, physician or that you seek a really good psychotherapy so that you can be psychologically healthy. Those things of course are important, but you know, you also need, you know, a good, pain management regime in order to be addressing what's what is uh, going on but the point i'm trying to make with the study is that the psychosocial variables you know the spiritual variables having those things attended to in a rigorous um longitudinal consistent way makes a profound difference The, the difference between wanting to be alive and not wanting to be alive. There, there was also a similar study that was done, uh, you know, a, a few decades preceding the Trevino study, which looked at patients with um, end-stage malignancies. I think this was done in Sweden. And basically, the thing that was predictive of suicidality was whether or not patients were offered follow-up. Yeah. If you're offered follow-up, yeah. then you were more likely to be able to sustain the wish to go on living. But if you were basically told, listen, we have nothing else to do, Right. Not interested in being further involved. Right. And you were most likely to find yourself along a pathway that included suicidality. And, and finally, it was I think it was Dame Cicely Saunders who said, suffering is only intolerable when you know that no one cares. Right. Oh, that just wraps it up perfectly. I mean, wraps up that part of the conversation. There's so much more to talk about. Yeah, I'm really glad you dug into the whole risk factors um, because there are there are definitely some things that you know we as humans marinate in for a while and create certain <laughs> certain situations that might create more of that suicide uh, ideality. Okay, one thing I'm really intrigued with is it seems like an end of life care that there's a strong emphasis on helping patients sort of define and fulfill their personal goals and wishes, and uh, I believe that this is such a beautiful part of the person centered approach to care. And that one thing that inside the chronic pain community, you know, they tend to struggle with a little bit because they don't believe that there's opportunity to even think ahead or set goals or work towards goals. So how do you in end of life care use those goals and wishes as uh, something to help them with their end of life care? I mean, the way we do it, uh, I mean, the context, uh, again, uh, has to do with this issue of, uh, of of personhood um, and also has to do with this issue of of dignity. So when we studied dignity, and I referred to an empirical model of dignity in the terminal ill, and I said, you know, that model shows us that there are a multitude of variables that can influence sense of dignity in the terminally ill. One key variable that was kind of a, a, a clue for us was a variable that we labeled generativity. Now, generativity is actually a, um, a, a psychological term that's borrowed from the developmental psychologist Eric Erickson. And Erickson talked about these different stages of psychological development that we as humans go through. And what he said is that, you know, when we are either sick or uh, aging or approaching near the end, um, one of the later stages of psychosocial developments, you know, as we age, is something called generativity. Mm. And he says generativity versus stagnation. Ah. So if we are going to be generative, which really means, are we reaching a place in our psychological development when our, our, our emotional energy is beginning to be invested in the people who we will eventually be leaving behind. Mm-hmm. In other words, what ripple effect mm-hmm. will my life have in the absence of my physically being here? In other words, you know, this, these are things that can, you know, even transcend death itself. And so that issue around then generativity was the clue for us to say, you know, people who even who have um, something, you know, overwhelming circumstances like chronic pain or life-threatening, life-limiting illness, or even quite literally approaching end of life, don't necessarily lose the ability and the wish 
to want to safeguard the well-being of people that they care about, make sure that their life has meaning and purpose and, and stood for something. And so can we facilitate some kind of an approach, some kind of an intervention that would allow people to actually exercise those generativity needs? Mm -hmm. And that's what we developed. Um, and this is only one way of, of exercising generativity, and there are a multitude of ways, but we developed something called dignity therapy. And dignity therapy guides people with a trained therapist through a conversation that allows them to articulate the things that matter to them. And it may be partially biographical. These are the things I would want people to know or to remember. Um, but as well, there's an element of wisdom, um, which is um, these are the things I've learned. These are the lessons I would like people to kind of uh, take with them as they move forward. It can be the sharing of hopes, wishes, dreams, uh, guidance um, to kind of help shape the path that people will follow after that individual is gone. And, and dignity therapy now is being done, you know, internationally. Mm -hmm. um, it's been translated into, you know, multiple languages. The, the book I wrote on dignity therapy has been translated into multiple languages. And so it's become part of the armamentarium, not only of uh, healthcare providers in, in palliative care, but any place where personhood is under assault. Now, uh, while I'm saying this, I'm realizing that I don't think there's been a dignity therapy study in chronic pain. And my goodness, that would be a fascinating thing to embark on because other areas where personhood can be undermined, such as people who are uh, incarcerated, mm -hmm. dignity therapy studies of people who are dying in prisons, yeah. people who have mental illness for whom personhood is kind of like the target organ. There have been dignity therapy studies in patients who are mentally ill. And then finally, um, you know, people with uh, cognitive uh, deterioration, you know, dementia, and there have been dignity therapy studies in that patient population. But there's not been such a study in, in chronic pain. And after this call, I'm going to sit down and think, gee, is, is that a path that uh, that could be pursued? Oh, and if it is, please let, keep me posted, because I, I do believe, and again, this is where this conversation is coming from, that there is such a belief in the chronic pain community that the that personhood is not being addressed as well as it could be. So definitely there's lots of good doctors and nurses on the front line who are doing their best to address. But I mean, just the way the system is set up based on the time that they have and the connections they are trying to create but may not be able to necessarily, I think that would be a fascinating, fascinating study. So yes, keep and, me well, and as we we're talking, you know, the other person who came to mind when you're, you know, talking about, you know, so what is it that people can do? Um, I, I'm reminded of the work of the, um, you know, German psychoanalyst, uh, Viktor Frankl. Yes. And, yeah. uh, if you've not read Viktor Frankl, uh, he was uh, an extraordinary uh, individual whose contributions have been, you know, pivotal uh, in understanding human psychology, particularly in the face of adversity. And uh, probably his, his most famous book is Man's Search for Meaning. Right. And, the, and the essence of Man's Search for Meaning is that, I mean, there are many, many things and many deprivations that we can live with. Right. But lack of meaning and lack of purpose is likely something that we can't live with. Right. And Living a life that feels meaningless and without purpose eventually is living a life where, as one of my patients told me, breathing feels like it's become redundant. Yes. And that, honestly, I would suggest is probably one of the biggest challenges the chronic community faces is just that lack of purpose. Dignity is often at the core of both end-of-life care and living with chronic pain. Can you share some insights into how promoting self-respect autonomy uh, and choice can be central to the care of and support provided in these two overlapping uh, fields. Again, it, it, it takes me back to um, the, uh, I mean, the studies we've done on dignity and, and the findings of which have certainly been, you know, affirmed by, uh, you know, clinical experience over, over, over many decades. Um, you know, the, uh, the key for, I think, healthcare providers is coming to the realization that the way 
they are with people in the clinical context has a profound influence on patient experience. You know, if, if you come into healthcare, particularly if you've been dealing with a problem like chronic pain, or, you know, you have a chronic ailment that um, frequently brings you to the attention of healthcare provider, after a while, you know, it's easy to feel somehow that, you know, your, your suffering, your angst is being uh, overlooked or is being um, somehow dismissed or, or, or not fully recognized. And, and that feeling uh, can be imparted with very little effort on the part of anyone from the person who takes your telephone call to the receptionist to the person who is doing triage uh, so that dignity conserving care I say actually is something that is sort of a core responsibility and opportunity for anyone who has contact with patients, you know, with, with, without, uh, without exception. Um, and, and some of the work that, you know, we've done has looked at, uh, or I've kind of forwarded uh, things like um, understanding the ABCDs of dignity conserving care. A, recognizing that your attitude has a profound influence on patient experience. B, behavior, recognizing that your behaviors, whether you sit, whether you stand, whether you meet someone's gaze, whether you avert someone's gaze, these subtleties have a profound influence on their sense of, of dignity. C is for compassion, which is understanding the suffering of another accompanied by an attempt to try and mitigate that suffering. The suffering of another person, I should have said, which then speaks to the fact that if we're going to be delivering dignity conserving care, we need to know who is the person. We need to understand personhood. Yeah. And D is for dialogue. Mm. And dialogue, the conversations that we have, need to be ones that are affirming of this individual. I mean, I, I sometimes tell this story of I was. Uh, you know, just passing by a doorway in the cancer clinic and the door was just closing. And I heard the medical oncologist ask a question of the patient who was in the room. Um, so how was your vacation? Mm. And then the door shut. Mm. Now, this is a very busy oncologist who specializes in leukemias and lymphomas. I guarantee you within five minutes, they were not still talking about the vacation. They were not looking through photographs. But the point is, by asking the question, what you're acknowledging is that, well, leukemia and lymphoma don't take vacations. Right. People do. Right. Yeah. And so part of this is uh, being able to understand that. Now, the other thing, though, that uh, point that I wanted to make, though, and, and this again begins to happen when people start to develop certain biases. Mm -hmm. I've seen this person time and again. This person is always has the same complaint. Nothing seems to change. Maybe they're drug seeking. You know, maybe this is all in their head right. and all logical. Yeah. You develop certain biases that can then taint right. the way that you see the patient. What one approach that, that I have talked about uh, is to uh, first harken back to say, how do we know how to treat people? Mm -hmm. Well, oftentimes we use ourselves as kind of this gold standard barometer. We say, okay, I will treat you the way I would want to be treated. Right. Or the way I would want my family member to be treated. That is the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have others do unto you. Right. The problem with that, I mean, although it, it's, it's a vitally important starting point and it's being, you know, part of, you know, religious traditions for millennia. Mm -hmm. the, the problem, though, is what happens when you are not able to see the patient accurately? Then mm -hmm. you can perceive suffering that may not be there, or you can perceive a lived reality that is basically shaped by your own biases. Yes. You know, you may say, geez, you know, if I were in that situation, you know, I wouldn't want to be that disabled. I wouldn't want to be that marginalized. I wouldn't want to be that impoverished. I wouldn't want to be so on and so forth. Yeah. So I have introduced, uh, and, and this, these 
papers came out um, in 2022, something called the platinum rule, which I say is do unto patients as they would want done unto themselves. Right. In other words, uh, recognize mm -hmm. that your lens yeah. is tainted by biases that are created by the way in which you and all of us are socialized. I mean, in Western culture, youth, beauty, power, wealth, yeah, these are the things. <laughs> yes. yeah, I'm sorry. Productivity. <laughs> yeah. these, these are the things, you know, that, that's the altar we worship at. And everything else, you know, um, maybe not quite so much. Yeah. Um, that can lead to devaluing people who have a very different lived experience than you might and might lead you to making choices that are kind of, you know, nihilistic yeah. and, and, and maybe even offering uh, pathways that you would see um, as diverting away from consequences that you personally would find untenable. Right. So make sure with the platinum standard that you always bear in mind the patient's perspective. I do believe that the bias goes both ways too. So, you know, for those who are struggling with chronic pain, they may also be going into the appointment with a bias, which may also be impeding their sort of expansiveness, uh, learning, understanding, trying out new protocols, whatever it might be. So it certainly goes both ways. Uh, yeah, our um, caregivers, I just want to spend a little time for them, because for those who do care for someone who lives with chronic pain or chronic illness, um, they can also learn from this whole person-centered approach, and they're probably doing their darndest to try to create that environment and nurture that person-centered care. But um, how does dignity therapy extend to the loved ones uh, is my first question. And then um, could you also maybe describe, uh, touch on how compassionate end-of-life care can provide support and meaning to the providers as well? Okay, I'll start with the first, and if I forget the second question, you're going to prompt me. <laughs> so, um, you ask, how does dignity therapy influence the the family member? And and I would say, let's not even refer. I mean, dignity therapy is one specific facet of what we've been talking about, but the larger gambit of what we're talking about is really dignity and care. How how can we support patients in a way? that reinforces their sense of dignity. Um, and by the by, how does that affect family members? So what I can tell you is, is this, by and large, anything that affects the dignity or undermines the dignity of the patient mm -hmm. does the same to the family member. Uh, family members feel uh, an affront, feel assaulted. If you are now treating their mother, their father, their child, their loved one, their partner as just a patient, right? it makes them feel as if you are being dismissive of um, and you are unaware of the magnitude of what's going on here, because this isn't a heart patient in that bed whose you know, cardiac parameters you're trying to manage. Right. This is my uncle. This is my husband. This is my spouse. So it's, it's important that we bear in mind that anything that affronts the dignity of the patient may also affront the dignity of the, the family member. And, and that's critical. Um, one thing that we did, and this was an, an interesting study that we uh, completed during COVID-19, is we actually went into the intensive care units here in our hospitals in Winnipeg. We approached the intensivist who is now looking after these patients who were at high, high risk of dying of COVID or of some other ailment. Family members were you know, forbidden from being present because of public health restrictions. We got permission to call the family member at home. Mm. And what we said to the family member when something like this, look, we, we, we know a lot about this person in hospital who's now on a ventilator and you know, going through all of these terrible, terrible medical challenges, yeah. but we can't talk to them. And what we really know almost nothing about is who they are as a person. And then we ask them what we call the PDQ or the patient dignity question. What do I need to know about you as a person 
in order to take the best care of you possible. Uh, we slightly tweak that. In this instance, we said, so what do we need about, about your family member in order to take the best care of them possible? Um, I can tell you, having done some of these myself, family members were gobsmacked. Yeah. They could not believe that somebody would call them in the midst of this medical trauma that their family was going through to say, who is this person? As, as a human being, we would then um, summarize the conversation into two or three paragraphs. We would like then call them back and read it to them, make sure it was accurate. And here's the litmus test. We'd say, do we have your permission mm. to place this on the patient's medical chart? Ah. In every instance, and, and this, these, this, these kinds of studies, they're called PDQ studies, patient dignity question, have been done in thousands of patients in different centers around the world. In every instance, the family member said, this needs to go on my chart. And when we evaluated their satisfaction, mm -hmm. um, all of them said, this is something that was important, that every patient and family should be offered. It was a, an emotionally meaningful experience and almost without exception felt, this will affect the way that my loved one is cared for. That's amazing, so powerful. And I think just uh, as a quick, before we start to wrap up, but the whole concept of mirroring, you know, you, you've already touched on it as far as sort of what is best for that person-centered care in that moment is that reflection of what is best for them and what they believe to be best for them, whether it be the, the patient or the, the the family member. And mirroring is such a powerful, powerful tool. As we wind down our conversation, is there anything that we may have missed that you would like our listeners to know before we move on? Just that, I mean, this, I mean, this, this body of research uh, has largely uh, been aimed at trying to both understand patients uh, and families, uh, trying to understand what what I think of as kind of the experiential landscape of uh, of a patient experience, and and what it says about that landscape is that if, if you are going to be someone who occupies that space as a care provider, you need to be familiar with the entirety of the terrain. You know, it's not good enough that you just look after some aspect of the human being that you have siloed independent of the fact that, you know, you're dealing with human beings. I, I published a study years ago that uh, I called The Secret is Out. Patients are people with feelings that matter. Wow. So, um, so that's one thing is to say that, you know, that is what this body of research has really looked at and really looked at how can we change the perspective of the, of the healthcare provider. In, in the last, um, I'd say really since the beginning of COVID, I've been trying to focus some of my attention to writing articles and materials that are directed not towards healthcare providers, but are directed towards healthcare consumers. Mm -hmm. And if people are interested, um, I can provide a, a reading list and hopefully you might be able to post it as part of the podcast mm -hmm. so that people can look at some articles that deal with things like depression yeah. and another article that looks at, you know, well, why is being a patient such a difficult pill to swallow yeah. um, and, and, and similar such publications. So um, if, if people want to pursue that further, I would say, you know, that is a, a place hopefully that they can look. And we also have, uh, there are two websites that I would encourage people to, uh, to check out. One is called the Canadian Virtual Hospice, virtualhospice.ca. And it's the largest repository in, in the world, information on uh, loss, chronic illness, uh, death, dying, bereavement for healthcare providers, for uh, family members and for uh, patients themselves. And the other website is dignityincare.ca, which houses uh, you know a lot of the material that uh, that I have been talking about, and really give some details about you know the tools and the papers if people want to kind of drill down further. Right, perfect. Well, that was exactly what I was looking for. Was where they can find out more information. Thank you, thank you so very much. This has been a conversation I've been thinking about for over a year, 
<laughs> so I really, I, I mean, you made it easy. Um, I, I, I know our listeners are going to gain so much from this. And I really hope that the research does start to come out around dignity and chronic pain care, because I think that will really change the landscape significantly. So thank you. Thank you so much for being here. Well, it's been my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much for being here and for listening in today. By you being here today, it states loud and clear that you are either curious about learning more about your pain, or you are ready to truly shift and become the expert on your own pain. Either way, we've opened our doors to two unique spaces within the Change Pain Academy. Inside our growth membership, we learn and practice how to first regulate your dysregulated nervous system that develops with chronic pain. Once you are able to change the internal landscape towards a more regulated state, other treatment protocols and self-care management practices really become much more effective. Then, once you've shifted into a more regulated state, we get to work on many of the other transformational skills and practices that help you improve your life with pain. And the best part? We do all of this inside an incredibly supportive community where we learn, grow, celebrate our wins together all for less than a dollar a day for more information go to pain to possibilities.com that's pain number two possibilities.com